Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We are in the continuing series on authority. I keep thinking that I'm going to come to the end of this one of these days, but the more I study on it, the bigger it gets for me. So you're just going to have to bear with me until I get it all out. Genesis chapter 1, telling us the creation account, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air. And over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Notice how many times it talks about being made in the image of God. Now the uh, Hebrew scholars tell us that in the original Hebrew, which is a little different from modern day Hebrew, but the original Hebrew that this... uh, Uh, text was written image literally means an exact duplication in kind you remember that uh, earlier in the creation account it tells us over and over again god created things uh, after his kind it says in some places that he created uh, some verses it says he created things after his kind meaning god's kind other places it says the things were created after its own kind or will produce after its own kind the um being made in the image and the likeness of God, uh, in my opinion, has little or nothing to do with appearance. But if you look up the words in the uh, concordance nowadays, you'll find that most of the definitions or the uh, descriptions of this word, these words, have to do with appearance. But it's got to be talking about something more than that. Because if you think about it, when the Bible tells us when God made Adam, he formed his body from the dust of the ground. He didn't create his body. He'd already created the dust of the ground, the earth, that he used as the tool to form man. So he formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he looked just like a human being. But there was no life in him. So it can't be about appearance. Adam didn't become a living soul, a living being, until God breathed into him the breath of life. He breathed into him his own spirit. His own makeup. The Bible says God is the spirit and those that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. So he can't be talking about appearance. Well, if he's not talking about appearance, what is he talking about? Well, as we said, he's talking about being made an exact duplication in kind. Now, God gave man a purpose, gave him instructions. In verse 28, he said, God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. But you notice the word subdue. The word subdue means keep it under your control. Keep the earth under your control. Keep the earth under your control. Now, I have a hard time with that. Because until sin came in under the scene, came in upon the scene, there was nothing that could alter the perfect nature in which God had created the earth. You remember after God made man in in the six days of creation, he looked at everything and said it was very good. Well, what is there on the earth prior to Satan's appearance that could cause the earth to get out of of line? Literally, he's saying subdue the earth. If it gets out of line, you control it. Well, apart from sin, what could make the earth get out of line if it was created perfectly after God's kind? So I'm not sure exactly what all that means, to be honest with you. Nevertheless, the importance of the, of the words, the importance of the instruction is there for everybody to see and to, to grasp, and that is God gave man dominion. He said, subdue the earth. Keep it under your control. Now, there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. Everything was made perfectly. There was no rotten apples on a tree, no worms to eat holes in the apples. Or I guess, well, I, I, I can't say that there weren't worms, but they didn't eat apples, I guess. There was nothing that could taint the perfection that God created the earth to operate in. Now, in chapter 2, it tells us that God made, uh, gave man a commandment. Uh, what verse am I looking for? Verse 16, Genesis chapter 2. Well, verse 15 first. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Dress and keep means guard and protect, but it implies work. It implies labor. 
And we know this is not labor by the sweat of his brow because that came as a result of the curse once Adam fell. But there was an instruction that was given to Adam to tend to the garden. Subduing the garden had something to do with work that God put man here on the earth to do. Well, if it wasn't physical labor and physical work that he was talking about, what kind of work was it? Well, I believe it was the work of God's, I believe it was the work of man's mouth following God's example. Everything God created, he created with words. So I think he's telling man, you do things to subdue the earth in the same way that I did things to create the earth through the words of your mouth. Well, that would make God, that would make man after God's own kind, wouldn't it? See, that's, in my opinion, in my thinking, and the more I study it, the more I'm, I'm convinced of this. Man being made after God's own kind or in his image, after his likeness, means a lot more than just man being a spirit being. See, angels are spirit beings, but they don't have authority here on the earth. Satan is a spirit being, but he has no authority here on the earth. That's why he's looking to deceive mankind to utilize his, his mankind's authority. Or maybe a better way to say that is he influences mankind to try to get him to misuse his authority for Satan's purposes rather than God's. So he's put man in the garden, told him to dress and keep the garden, work it, guard it, protect it. And then he gave him a command. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, we know he's talking about spiritual death, because Adam did eat of the, the fruit of the tree that he was commanded not to, and he didn't die physically, but he did die spiritually. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Well, what death is he talking about? He's got to be talking about spiritual death. The Bible says that God found us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, we weren't physically dead, but we were spiritually dead, separated from God. Now, there's some things that we've looked at in times past, and we won't take the time to look at it again. But, for example, in James chapter 3, James goes into a great deal of detail about the tongue. He talks about how the tongue is an unruly evil, full of poison, deadly poison, he says, no man can tame it. But then he says this. He said, it's set on fire the course of hell. Well, that's certainly not the way God made the tongue. When God looked at the creation and rested on the seventh day and said everything was very good, he can't be talking about the tongue that James is describing. So there was a change in man's tongue. There was a change in the operation of the tongue. The words of man changed. The source or the influence that precipitated the use of words changed with the fall. James goes so far as to say that if you defile, the tongue is the smallest member of the body. But if you can control the tongue, you can control your whole body. The key to walking a perfect life before God. The secret to the, to the kingdom of God, if we can say it that way, is to control the tongue. Well, then Adam must have lost control of his tongue. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've talked about and gone into some detail about how that when Adam was in the Garden of Eden before sin, his only source of life was not his intellect. The source of his life was the spirit of God within him. The source of his knowledge was not intellect. It was not university studies. Not because he'd been to school for any period of time. The source of everything that he knew came from God. It came from the inside, what God had placed within him. But that all changed when he fell. Now he's gaining new information from a different source, not from his spirit. His spirit dies spiritually, which means spiritual death means to be separated from God. So he's not in contact spiritually with God anymore. The spirit that is within him is estranged or separated from God. It's no longer a source of information for him. 
So the only source of information he has is his five physical senses that is receiving information from this physical realm. You remember when the Bible says that when Adam fell, it says the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and ashamed. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And they heard God coming down to walk with them in the cool of the the day in the garden. And they hid themselves and God searches them out and calls to them. And Adam says, I heard you coming and I was afraid. Fear is one of the first things that took place when man's spirit was separated or estranged from God. Fear became the default setting, if you will, for man's spiritual condition. How did he know he was naked? That's the thing God asked him. He said, how do you know you're naked? Who told you? Now, the fact was he was naked and had been naked all the time. But I believe that they had been clothed with the glory of God. But the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is there was information that he didn't have that, in my opinion, was irrelevant information. His nakedness was irrelevant information until somebody told him, not through words, but through his five physical senses, once his spirit was separated from God. Now, let's talk about the tree that he ate of. When God said at the end of the six days of creation, he looked at everything and said, it's very good. That would have to include this tree, wouldn't it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, it wasn't like that there was poison fruit on that. All the other trees in the garden had good fruit, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had poison fruit. And so God was saying to Adam, it wasn't like God was saying to Adam, don't eat of that tree, it's got poison fruit. If it had had poison fruit, it couldn't have been part of everything that was very good. If God had wanted to, it would have been just as legitimate for him to change trees from week to week. Week one, he could have said, now this tree is the one you're commanded not to eat of. Week two, he could have said, now you can have this tree this week, but next week you can't have this tree. Because it's not a matter of the fruit that was on the tree. It had nothing to do with the taste of the fruit. It had nothing to do with the fruit itself. It had to do with the consequence of disobedience. You remember when Eve was tempted, entered into the deception of the enemy, she looked at the tree for the first time and saw that it had good fruit on it, fruit that was good to eat, good for eating, I think the Bible says. The King James says it that way. Well, there was always fruit good to eat on there. The important thing was the commandment of God. And it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's an interesting title because man already knew good. That's all he did know. So why isn't it just called the tree of the knowledge of evil? Why is it called good and evil? Other translations translate different things. And it could be translated any number of things, really. The Amplified calls it blessing and calamity. But it could be called the tree of victory and defeat. It could be called any number of things. The blessing and the curse. You can pick your own titles for it. Because the important thing is not what the tree looked like. The important thing was not the fruit that was on it. The important thing was the commandment of God. And when it says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible talks about doubt and unbelief being evil more than any other thing. You remember in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 it says take heed therefore brethren. Lest there be in you be in you an evil heart of unbelief like the children of Israel when they came to the promised land and failed to go in. You remember the 12 spies story. Ten of them came back with what the Bible calls an evil report. Well, what was that? It was an evil report of unbelief. See, the Bible doesn't talk about evil in the same context we do. We judge one evil versus another evil. Most often, the Bible talks about evil as being anything contrary to God and his word. Now, here's the point that, I want to, to, that I'm trying to get to. 
Don't know if I'm setting it up very well or not, but here's the point that I want to try to point out. And that is before the fall, Adam is operating in God's kingdom. He's operating in the Garden of Eden in the only way that he has been instructed or has been given knowledge to operate, and that is he controls things with his words. Before Adam fell, there was no such thing as doubt. Adam didn't look at a situation and say, well, I'm going to try this. God said to do it this way. I sure hope it works. There was no fear of failure. There was no knowledge of failure. Failure didn't exist. There was no what if this doesn't work. There was nothing like that. Man had complete authority and dominion in the earth. I've got a, um, my grandson will be two in uh, December, middle of December. And he's, uh, oh, I don't know, 30, maybe 35 pounds. He's getting to where he's walking around, can run around and do all that kind of stuff. And you can finally understand what he's talking about. He doesn't have a real big vocabulary, but he has certain words that he knows and certain things that he knows what to call them. Now, I've got a dog named Jack that's 70 pounds of pure muscle. He's about three years old, just past being the puppy stage. Now, Jack is a handful. He's a good dog, but he doesn't know his own strength. He bumps you coming down the stairs. You better be holding on to something. He's just all muscle. Now, when my grandson comes over at 30 or 35 pounds, there is no question about who's in charge. He knows how to say no, Jack. He knows how to say move, Jack. He's got a couple other things he's worked out. But that dog will obey that little boy. That's not because he can, he, my grandson, can manhandle the dog. He couldn't. And there are times where Jack will be playing around with him and bump him with his tail or something like that and knock him over. But my grandson's still in charge. I think we make a, different, a distinction, a wrong distinction sometimes, between power and authority. The Bible says we have authority. We want to feel like we have power. That's going to be a long time until my grandson is able to outpower or become stronger than that dog. But he still controls the dog. He can make that dog stop on a dime. They know Jack and that dog will stop. In the same way, I believe, man has authority over all the power of the devil. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 and verse 19, after the 70 returned from exercising power and exercising authority, excuse me, in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Now, I don't in any way think that means that Satan fell when they began to use the name. I believe he's saying, I was in heaven when Satan was cast out with a third of the angels. He's been defeated all the time. He was a defeated foe when he deceived Eve. And got Adam to go along with his deception. He said, Behold, I, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven, and I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Folks, that's either true or it's not. There is no middle ground. But the church, at least the modern day church, seems to play around with that middle ground thing. Well, there might be parts of that that we have authority, parts of the work of the devil that we have authority over. But you know that nobody has authority over everything the devil can do. Well, Jesus said we did. Now, just because we may not be living up to it doesn't mean it's not there. When Adam fell, 
things changed. He lost control of his tongue. No longer is his tongue motivated by his spirit. No longer does his tongue carry the same power, spiritual power, to carry out the will of God that it had before. At the moment that Adam fell, his words became conditional, where before they were not. They were not. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 17. Jesus is talking to the disciples and they bring up a point about forgiveness that he addresses that blows them away. We'll start in verse, uh, verse 4. I'm going to pull this out of context a little bit. But Luke 17, verse 4, and Jesus is speaking and he says, uh, well, I, I better back up to verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt, thou shalt forgive him. Now notice the response of the disciples in verse 5. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Now they understood something most Christians don't seem to get. And that is faith is a forgiveness operation. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Forgiveness is a faith operation. You forgive by faith, not by feelings. And so often people say, well, I just can't forgive. You, Pastor Mike, you just don't understand what they did to me. I just can't forgive. Notice what Jesus says when the disciples want him to increase their faith so that they can forgive greater, in a greater measure and, and measure up to what Jesus is saying. The Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted into the sea, and it should obey you. Now the words might... You might say, and the words should obey you are a lot stronger than the King James translates them. Literally, you look in an interlinear Greek Bible, you'll find out that these words are would. If you had faith as a grain of mustard seeds, you would say, and it will obey you. Now, he's talking about forgiveness specifically, but he's talking generally, as far as the principle is concerned, he's talking about anything that would hinder you and hold you back from the things of God. He's talking about obstacles or hindrances. And notice he says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted into the sea, and it would or will obey you. The, the words are, it should obey you is a phrase of, uh, that's uh, translated from two Greek words. And it literally means to hearken unto authority. So where it says it should obey you, where it's translated it should obey you. He's talking about hindrances, problems, things of the flesh, things of this earth that get in your way. And hold you back from the things that God has instructed for us. Or provided for us. He's saying those things will hearken to your authority. Those things will hearken to your authority. Now think about what he's saying. He's saying your problems will obey you. He's saying your problems will obey you. Too many times people are praying that, the, that our problems would obey God. That God would step in and God would do something so that our problems would obey him. But Jesus says that's not the way it works. He says if you use faith as a grain of mustard seed, which is intended to be planted by speaking. He said here's how you plant that. Here's how you use that. You would say to your problem. I don't care if it's deep root, deep seeded. Or has deep roots. I don't care if it's been there for a long, long time. But if you speak to it and tell it to be removed, it will obey you. It will hearken to your authority. Every time we say that we can't uh, forgive, 
because of what somebody has done for us or anything in the, along that line. Anytime we can't say that we can't do what the Bible says that we can or should do, what we're doing is we're speaking to our problems and enabling them to take deeper roots. Because your problems listen to your voice. Your problems listen to your voice. Either that or Jesus lied to us. So the disciples are thinking, boy, it's going to take greater faith for us to forgive seven times, 70 times. Well, well, in this case, Jesus just said seven times a day. In uh, Matthew's account, he said seven times, 70 in a day. The important thing is not the number. The important thing is to realize that the love of God and the forgiveness of God goes beyond what we think that it will that we're able to to do with it so the disciples understand boy it's going to take something more than what we've got so increase our faith Jesus said it's not a matter of more faith it's a matter of using what you have if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed you would say to the tree you would say to unforgiveness if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed you would say to poverty you'd say to lack If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'd say to sickness. You'd say to disease. Be plucked up by the roots, and it will obey you. It will obey you. Now, why don't we speak to our problems? Well, they look too big for us. They look too big for us. It's a funny thing. I get a big kick out of it. I just told you the story about my my, uh, grandson. I get a big kick out of my grandson ordering my dog around because this dog's big, strong. But he doesn't look at the size of the dog and think, well, that dog's bigger than me. I better get out of the way. He looks at the dog and says, move, Jack. And Jack moves. The only reason we don't use our faith and speak to our problems is because we think and or we feel like our problems are too big for us to handle. Yet Jesus is saying, if you'll speak to your problem, it'll obey you. If you'll speak to your problem, it'll obey you. Now we know that faith comes by hearing, Romans ten seventeen. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. I want you to look with me over to a couple of examples. And you'll know all these very well, I'm sure. But look with me over to Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at some examples where people spoke to their problems or used their faith against their problems and got results. Beginning in verse 25, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse. Now let's stop there and think about her condition. She's had this issue of blood for 12 years. It says she suffered many things of many physicians, which means it was not a pleasant treatment regimen or whatever they tried to do for her, as you could well understand. In those days, they'd try to bleed people and leeches and all kinds of goofy things to help people that that produce nothing. So she suffered through a lot of unpleasant experiences, through many different physicians. The end result was... She didn't have any money left. She spent all of her money on doctors, and she was nothing better but rather grew worse. She was nothing better but rather grew worse. If you put yourself in her position for just a moment, what's your outlook on life? What would her outlook on life be? Can we agree that it's a hopeless situation? Even if she did find a doctor that could help her, which is highly unlikely. She didn't have any money to to use to hire the doctor to help. So she's completely without hope. She's got a problem that's way, way, way too big for her to handle. She's done everything within her power to overcome the problem that she's facing to no avail. But something changes for this woman. She's growing worse day by day, little by little. But notice the next verse says, when she heard of Jesus, 
when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, we, we can talk about the power of God going out of Jesus and into her and the great things there. But what I want you to focus on for just a moment is, notice how she went from a hopeless condition to having hope. Where did she find her hope? Well, the Bible says when she heard of Jesus. When she heard of Jesus. In other words, there was something that she heard about Jesus, and we don't know what it was. Well, we don't know in its entirety what it was. It must have been that people were healed by physical contact with Jesus because that's what she had faith to do. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word... She didn't heal the people. She didn't hear that people were being healed by being baptized of Jesus. Or else she would have said, if I can just be baptized of Jesus, I'll be whole too. So it must have had something to do with physical contact. Because she said, if I can just touch his garment, I shall be whole. Now, whether that literally means that she heard that people were healed by touching his garment, that could very well be. But it could also be that she just heard that people were healed by physical contact in some other manner. But it has to do with physical contact. So she gains hope that through physical contact with Jesus, her situation can change. Think of the power of the Word of God. We think of the power of the Word of God to alter people's bodies a lot of time. But maybe the greatest work of the power of God is that it can turn someone from a hopeless condition to having hope. To being hopeful. You remember in Romans chapter 4. Speaking of Abraham. When he was past the age to bear children. And Sarah was too old to have kids too. Yet they've got a promise from God. That Isaac would be born. It says who against hope. I think this is uh, verse 17 or 18. Of Romans chapter 4. It said Abraham who against hope. Without any natural hope. Believed in hope according to that which was spoken. In other words, Abraham didn't have any hope, so he had to go to God's word to find some. Folks, that may be one of the greatest displays of God's power in all of the universe, is to be able to give a hopeless person or give someone in a hopeless condition hope for things to change. Well, in her case, when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind, for she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. She established a point of contact. Now, I want you to understand, her faith was conditioned. She didn't just say, Well, I've heard Jesus came to the earth. I've heard he's the Messiah. So I'll just take a hold of my faith right where I am. Thank God for it. Now, her faith was conditional. It was conditional on physical contact, at least contact with his clothes. She said, if I can touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. If I can touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, folks, here's, what, here's the point I'm trying to get to. Before the fall, faith was not conditional. There was no if involved. Adam didn't look at the earth and say, well, if only I do this or could do that, then this problem will be subdued. He just used his words after God's kind and changed things. But once sin came upon the scene, faith has from that point forward been conditional, still is today. Look with me over to Mark and... uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 8. There's two examples in Matthew chapter 8 that illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 1, it says, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
Now notice the condition of this man, this leper's faith, was different than the woman with the issue of blood. Her faith was conditioned on physical contact. If I can just touch his clothes, I'll be whole. His faith is conditioned on the will of God. It's interesting to me, astonishing to me, frankly, that of all the multitudes Jesus ministered to, of the thousands of people that must have been healed in Jesus' ministry that we know of, and John said there's tons and tons more stuff that Jesus said and did that didn't record it. He said if everything Jesus said and did was recorded, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, of all the things that Jesus did, of all the people that were healed, of all the th- people that were ministered to and the miracles that took place, there's only one guy out of all of them, only one guy that questioned the will of God to heal. Yet that's the number one question in the modern-day church today. That's the number one question. That is the one point that the devil has hammered into church doctrine more than any other thing relative to healing. And that is, is it God's will to heal everybody? And in large part, he's used Paul's account of his own thorn in the flesh to deceive people. First and foremost about what Paul's thorn was, which, by the way, was persecution. And secondly, whether or not God wanted Paul to be delivered from it. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus didn't redeem us from persecution. Paul says himself, they that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, he knew something about that firsthand. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He didn't say, if they persecuted me, they'll try to persecute you, but don't worry, I'll deliver you from it so that nobody will stand in your way. Well, wouldn't that have been great if he'd said that? But instead, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Jesus is saying, Paul, I've done everything that's going to be done about persecution. You've got everything you need to live in victory over it. And he did. Last two verses of the book of Acts tells us that Paul lived for two years in his own hard house, nobody forbidding him. So he came to the place, and the last thing that we know about his life is recorded in the book of Acts, at least, that nobody stood in his way. In other words, he was free of that thorn in the flesh. But this is the number one thing the devil uses to rob people, to deceive them, to get them to misuse their authority, to get them to fail to speak to their problem and thereby hinder them from walking in the fullness of the blessings that God provided when it comes to physical healing. So this one guy says, if you will, I believe you can. I'm just not sure you will. Well, Jesus has to meet that condition. He has to tell him the answer. He has to give him knowledge because faith begins where the will of God is known. This man can't believe for his healing until he knows if it's God's will for him. And Jesus said, I will be thou clean. Didn't hesitate, didn't have to pray. He moved on his behalf instantly and he was cleansed. Now the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, which means what God wants for one person when it comes to the work of Jesus We know that he's got different works for us all. He may have called you to something different than he's called me to. And so he equips us according to what we're called to, not according to to, uh, the redemptive work of Jesus. So there may be different things that you have been given, different talents, different abilities that you have that I don't have. So he treats us and deals with us differently in that regard. But when it comes to what Jesus paid the price for, He paid the same price for everybody to have the same results. Well, we know that physical healing is part of those results that he paid the price for. He took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we're healed. So when Jesus says, I will be thou clean, he's saying that not just to the leper, he's saying that to everybody. I will be thou clean. 
Now, if you skip down a couple of verses, it talks about another fellow that Jesus came in contact with. Verse 5, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies his home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Speak the word only. Now, here's the condition for him. If you'll just say the word. If you'll just say the word. My servant will be healed. Well we don't have to wait for that one either. Because the Bible says that all the promises of God are yes and amen. Jesus was the word made flesh here on the earth. But notice he's saying that it doesn't take the flesh part. For my servant to be healed. It just takes the word part. For my servant to be healed. Thank God we have his word today. In the same manner, in the same respect, spoken by God in the same way that Jesus spoke over this man's servant. He said, go your way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. Now back to what we talked about a little bit in Luke chapter 17. Jesus said concerning your problems. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to your problem. Be removed and be cast into the sea. And it will obey you. It will obey you. Now that sounds like a foreign language or a foreign concept to so many people, so many Christians. And it's one of the most basic tenets of Christianity. But let's stop and think about it for a minute. If we talk about it from a literal standpoint, when Jesus is speaking about the sycamine tree, And apparently they're walking down the road and there's a tree there that Jesus uses as an example. Well, if he's picking out a tree to use as an example to be plucked up by the roots and cast into the sea, I'm guessing it's a big tree, not a little one. Why would he pick a little one? They tell me that a sycamine tree is a mulberry tree and they do get pretty large. So if Jesus is talking about a big tree or something that represents a big problem in your life, let's consider where that tree came from. Was that tree, along with all trees, not created by the word of God? Well, if it was created by the word of God, why why would we think it a strange thing that it would now obey the word of God? And folks, that's the whole point. Because when Adam was in the garden before the fall, his source of life was the spirit of God within him. So the only thing that he spoke was God's words from within. And he had complete and total authority and dominion in the earth because he's simply speaking the word of God. Well, what about these other examples we just looked at? The woman with the issue of blood, the condition of her faith was if I can just touch his clothes. I'll be whole. The leper said, if you just will, if you're just willing, you can heal me. Jesus said, I am, I will be thou clean. Centurion said, speak the word only. If you'll just say the word. Now, some people look at those examples and those stories and they'll say, well, if we could have just lived when Jesus was here on the earth. Well, if you just lived when Jesus was here on the earth, your conditions might have been similar to those. If you could just get to where he was, if you could just get him to say the right words, if you could just get him to tell you that he's willing for you to be healed. But for us, the condition of faith is different. Look with me over to Mark chapter 11. Here's the condition of faith for us. Here's what will cause your problems to obey you. Mark chapter 11, Jesus speaking about the God kind of faith. And let me point that phrase out to you a little bit. The God kind of faith where he says in verse 22, have faith in God. That word in is literally the word of. Have the faith of God. Well, what would the faith of God be if not the God kind of faith? How else would you describe the faith of God 
if not the God kind of faith. It's of God, so it has to be God's kind. And I believe that's what Jesus is saying in in relation to the creation account. Everything produces after its own kind. He's saying have the God kind of faith. The word of God will produce the God kind of faith on the inside of you. The same faith that God has, the same faith God uses because it's of his word, a byproduct of his word. So Jesus says, have the God kind of faith. And then he tells us how it works. For Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Mountains are pretty big, aren't they? He's, re- he's talking about something that represents a big problem in your life. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. The woman with the issue of blood had the condition, If I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. The leper had the condition, If you just will, you can make me clean. The centurion had the condition, If you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. What's the condition for us? Well, Jesus said it very simply. He said, if I can just speak the word of God and not doubt in my heart, I'll have what I say. If I can just speak the word of God and not doubt in my heart from within, don't change what I'm saying, then I'll have what I say. Now, folks, just like some of the other scriptures we've talked about, that's either true or it's not. There's no middle ground there. There's no gray area here. There's no, well, yeah, part of that's true, or sometimes that's true, but it's either true or it's not true. And Jesus is giving us the condition of faith. Before the fall, there was no condition. Man spoke, his words came to pass. But now there's a condition because we're living in a corrupt world, a world with a corrupt system spiritually so now the condition is very simple if i can just speak the word of god and not doubt in my heart i can have what i say that's the only condition that god places on faith when it comes to the operation thereof the only one if i can just speak the word of god and not doubt in my heart I'll have what I say. Well, how quick is that going to happen? How long is it going to take for it to work? If I can just speak God's word and not doubt in my heart, I'll have what I say. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, how long are we supposed to do that? If I can just speak God's word and not doubt in my heart, I'll have what I say. See, a lot of people allow time to cause them to, to doubt in their heart. They get tied up with the time. How long? What if? But the condition is very simply this. If I can just speak God's word and not doubt in my heart, I'll have what I say. Thank God I can. Thank God I do. And thank God I will have what I say. Because it doesn't depend on God. It depends on me and you. Depends on you and me. You're the one that decides whether or not you can speak God's word. You're the one that decides whether or not you're going to doubt in your heart. God doesn't make that decision for us. You have authority. You remember in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 where God told Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of the mouth. He's talking about the word of God. All they had was the law of Moses then. So let's say it that way. This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. Why did y'all say that? Did I tell you to say that? I didn't literally mean say that. You freaked me out. I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here? When I said let's, I, I see. When I said let's say it like that, I don't mean let's repeat it like that. I mean let's in, let's interpose in or substitute the word of God for the book of the law. So God is saying. This word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. 
that thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all that is written therein, according to, to that which is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. That used to bother me. First time I noticed that it says, you'll make your own way prosperous. You'll determine your own success. I always thought God did that for you. It looked to me like he was doing different things for different people. I thought success was determined by what God did for you. But God's saying the very same things that we've hit on in other scriptures here. He's saying, you're the one on the earth with authority, not me. You're the one that if you speak the word of God, your way will be made prosperous. Your way will be made successful by the words of your mouth, not by God's action, but by you exercising your authority. In other words, it's the condition of faith. If I can just speak God's word and not doubt in my heart, I'll have what I say. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk by faith. The privilege that we have to operate in the God kind of faith. To speak from our hearts your word. Just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. To keep our heart from doubt and refuse to speak anything contrary to your word. You said, Father, that we would have what we said. We say that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We say that we're above and not beneath. We say that we're the head and not the tail. We say that in place of poverty and lack, we have abundance. We say that all of our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We say that we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We say that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We say that we have authority over all the power of the devil and nothing shall by any means hurt us. We say that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Thank you, Father, that as we hold fast to that profession of faith, we shall have what we say in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Well, let's all stand together. Hallelujah. I hope you're getting something from this. I sure am. I'm learning a lot. Learning things I thought I knew. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Oh, Father, thank you that you love us so much. You reveal to us the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Father, that your word never fails. Because we stand upon your word and speak your word only. We can't fail either. In Jesus' precious name. Amen, amen, amen. Well, thanks for being with us. God bless you. Have a great week.